my beautiful beauties. In case I haven't introduced myself in a while, my name's Kirsty or Kirsten. I'll respond to both, just not Kristen. Look, the both of us, Kristens and Kirstens, we have a an unspoken war raged between us and against us. We always um, we always get called the other person's name, and it infuriates all of us so in some way really it brings us together which is quite beautiful but we hate each other at the same time sorry sorry Kristen's listening but you know you know anyway I am the host of this audiobook podcast if you don't know that already um I don't know how you found your way here my book is gutter glitter it is now available in paperback head to Etsy or follow the link in the bio. Ah, it's so exciting. I am packing up books left, right and center. My therapists are buying them, which is so good because finally they're paying me. Look, does it even out? Not even slightly, not a drop in the ocean, but hey, we take what we can get when we can get it. Little apologoir, um, that's French for apology, off, off the bat. I, for not doing a podcast last week, I was really sick and I just couldn't um, get through the record. Even you might hear throughout this episode that my throat gets a little croaky at times. Got a cup of tea by my side, so I'm hoping I won't have to stop and start too many times. Um, but yeah, that's all it is. I'm I'm alive, help, I'm alive, um, for better or worse. <laughs> we are making our way through it and it's been a great week despite uh, being a bit sick because it's really exciting finally after all these years getting the book out, packaging it up, sending it on. There's been a few people that have posted images of it arriving or even videos. It's so great. So if you're one of those people that, has ordered the book or is planning to, it would be so amazing for my ego and my little soul. Um, If you're one of those people that takes a photo of you with the book or even a video and, and shares it with your community online, because first of all, word of mouth, that's the best way for me to get this to more ears and more eyes, but it just lifts my spirit so much. So I really, really, really appreciate it. It's truly just so heartwarming and humbling. So thank you. I also forgot to tell you going back two weeks now. So the previous episode that I released, that was a very special episode where I, I gave you a glimpse of my book reading um, that I did for the the grant and sang a couple of songs. So I know the audio quality wasn't as good as you know, right now in front of the mic in a closed environment, um, it was live. So the sound might've been uh, not up to par and I apologize. Another apologize, but I, I hope you enjoyed it anyway. And I forgot to tell you that I actually uploaded it as a YouTube video. So if you wanted to watch the entire video, watch me sing and I will put up a few other clips from the night, readings from the night as well. But if you don't want spoilers, don't watch them. Um, I chose this one specifically because I thought it gave away 
the least amount of spoilers and I don't think it gave away anything. So yeah, if you want to watch it, head to um, YouTube and just search Gutter Glitter and then I've called it, it's a long name, but again, I'll put it in the show notes, book launch, hashtag four plus pieces of you and I'm sensitive. Those are the names of the songs. But if you just Google, well, go to my YouTube page, which is at music Kirsten Moore. It's the first one on there at the moment, the first video up there. So that's another easy way to find it. On a serious note, I need to talk to some of you one-on-one because you're in trouble. Okay, you hear my tone? This is your mother speaking to you and she's disappointed. She's not angry, she's disappointed and also a little angry. (laughs) To those of you who have listened to the previous interview with my mother and my brother and have come to me to tell me that my brother sounds hot, your words The fact that those words just had to come out of my mouth is cringe beyond repair. You're dead to me. (laughs) Okay, all right. I love you. You're not dead to me. But that's only because you are a few of my best friends. And the fact that my best friends on this earth would say that to me, like I don't even know how to go on. The only forgiving factor is that you've bought books and so that money is in my pocket and it cannot be taken away from me you assholes if you must hear more of my brother's voice you can head to his podcast uh midnight crisis in which he does with his best friend uh who's called nobody on the show they've known each other for about Oh my God, he's an elder and even more so than I. Um, I think he just celebrated his 36th birthday. Like, gross. B, you're about 40, so RIP. Um, <laughs> he and his best friend have known each other for about 20 years from high school, maybe even longer. I have no concept of time. So you can listen there in Night Crisis on uh, iTunes and Spotify. You will have heard him in the previous podcast making lots of hilarious quips. If you enjoyed that, um, you can get more of that with his allegedly sexy voice. So enjoy and we will never speak of this again. Thank you very much. The soundtrack for this chapter is Metrics Help I'm Alive and That just so happens to be the title of the chapter as well, Help I'm Alive. If you are following my music and memoir playlist, which is the playlist that has all of the songs from the soundtrack of this book, I've included a few others just because I love them and I think they fit with the book and the inner workings of my mind. I think there's about three of us who listen to (laughs) songs in there, (laughs) but it's a good way to hear the song prior to the chapter starting. As always, I will put the song at the very end for those of you who listen to Spotify Premium. Otherwise, you will have to listen to it um, via YouTube or somewhere else to set the scene for yourself. Finally, I really wanted to do a live on TikTok today and I discovered, sorry, my cat's just 
going crazy in the background. Uh, <laughs> I discovered that you need a thousand followers in order to do a live. And um, I'm doing really well on TikTok. I have a whole um, 48 followers. <laughs> Come and join me if you're in the TikTok averse. Uh, it's, it's actually, you know, it's not just for the youths. You know, I've found a few other elders like myself in there and it's quite fun. I put content on there that uh, I don't put anywhere else. There's only a few videos I've shared from the TikTok onto Instagram. So come and join me. There's lots of additional information from me being a nutritionist. I add in some stuff about that part of my life. I talk a bit about uh, my eating disorder, about cancer, um, a lot of the topics from this book, but I expand on them a little bit and answer some questions um, that nobody asked for, which is, which is fun. <laughs> and um, I do some readings as well. So just little snippets um, in video form. So different stuff that you don't necessarily get from my Instagram or uh, just listening to the podcast. But they're both called Instagram and TikTok at Gutter Glitter Memoir. So you can find me there. This is my final thing I'm going to say before we get into the chapter, I promise. Those of you who are listening from overseas and would like to buy the book, it is coming. I just need to receive my copy to check that it's all good to go, that it looks perfect, that I'm happy with it. And then I will share the link with you all so that you can have your very own copy as well. The only difference between this book and the Aussie one is that I don't get to sign this version for you because it will be printing in your own country um, rather than printing in Australia. So that's why the postage will be lower. But unfortunately, I can't sign the copy for you. If you do want a signed copy, Look, you can always buy the Aussie one, but unfortunately you will have to pay the postage prices. That if you go to the Etsy page, just go to Etsy and search Gutter Glitter. It's the first thing that comes up, um, as well as a lot of different forms of sparkly glitter, <laughs> which is also cool. You, you can see that um, if you put everything through the book and then your location, your address, as you go through the payment, process, it will tell you how much your postage is uh, before you, you know, press buy. So you can get an idea of what it is. So up to you, but there is that option for you. Otherwise, by the next podcast, I should uh, be able to tell you where you can buy your own very own copy overseas. Let's get into it. Chapter six, help. I'm alive. Soundtrack metric. Help, I'm alive. If you were to look at an x-ray of my spine today, you would see the length of my thoracic spine fused together with titanium rods and screws. As my surgeon so colourfully described, there is a kind of makeshift vertebra in the middle of my back, built from medical chicken wire. During the surgery, this contraption was filled with powdered bone taken and ground down from one of my healthy ribs. Over time, this bone dust will remodel into new solid bone. Funny, 
I always imagined that getting my ribs removed would finally see me slipping into a Kardashian waist trainer. Sadly, it was not to be. Having a spinal fusion isn't like having a normal spine. It doesn't move, and that's the goal. It's as though the fused areas are one long, unbending trunk. If it moves, it breaks. And if it breaks, I breaks. After the nightmare of waking up with the breathing tube down my throat, things slowly started to improve. By day three, I was moved into a private room and out of the madness of intensive care. Finally, I would be relieved of the drainage tube between my ribs and lung. And although it was still painful to breathe, I no longer felt like I was suffocating. I was still nil by mouth, meaning I wasn't allowed to eat or drink anything for five more days to prevent fluid from entering my lungs. I was so sick, I wouldn't feel like eating properly again for months. But the lack of water was tough. I wasn't even allowed ice chips to suck on. When I was really lucky, my nurse would lean over and dab a small water-soaked cotton bud onto my dry, chapped lips. I was pathetically grateful and lapped up those cool droplets of water like a human succulent. I began begging every nurse that entered my room to give me even the tiniest sip of water, but all my efforts were denied. The first time I was allowed my very own cup of ice was incredible. I must have looked ecstatic because the nurse looked at me with a slightly sorry grin as she handed me the tiny cup of frozen delight. One by one, I placed single cubes into my mouth, savouring each morsel. I would let it melt on my tongue, enjoying the cold liquid for a moment, before feeling it drizzle down my throat with utter satisfaction. I lay in bed, realising that I had lost all control over my bodily functions, my autonomy, and even something as simple as having a sip of water. Had I wanted to break the rules and get my own ice chips, I physically couldn't. I couldn't roll over without the assistance of four nurses. Hell, I couldn't bend my knees on my own. I lay flat on my back, 24 hours a day, wearing some highly fashionable leg cuffs that rhythmically inflated and deflated to aid blood flow on my lifeless behalf. We don't realise how much incidental movement we do until it's taken away. A simple scratch of the cheek meant sorting my way through a collection of twisted wires and tubes working out how much energy was required to lift my arm, bending it without disturbing any insertion points, and then trying to quickly get the sweet spot before getting told off for moving. The strangest part was falling asleep, because there was no process involved. There was no shuffling about or preparing the cold side of the pillow. 
no rolling from one side to the other to find my comfy spot. All I did when it was lights out was close my eyes. That's it. Like a light switch. I was on one minute and off the next. Except I wasn't because we aren't robots who power down as soon as we close our eyelids. It's not like putting a blanket over a birdcage to confuse their tiny bird brains into thinking it's nighttime. I'm not a bird. I'm a human woman. I knew it would be a long and difficult road to recovery. But there were so many unexpected things that I could not have prepared for which tested my basic human instincts. Breathing comfortably was out. Drinking water? Out. Crying? Out. My pee was already draining into a catheter, so that was sorted. But when it came time to poop, I mean, there was just so much wrong with it. Please note, shit's about to get real. Shit's about to get Real, real. When you can't use your usual pooping muscles because they are attached to your out-of-order back, you kind of just hope your shit slides out of your body like an accidental fart. Something which it isn't want to do on a good day, let alone when you're packed to the gills with constipating opioids. Aside from that, I was lying down. Those of you who have ever tried to push a brick out of your ass with zero muscle contraction lying flat on your back while a bedpan digs into your shattered spine know what I'm talking about. That may be a rather niche demographic, but for those of you out there, I see you, I acknowledge you, and you are valid. Being washed was difficult. Not because I'm overflowing with dignity. I could probably do with a healthy helping of modesty. More so because my body was so unrecognisable that I felt obligated to apologise for it. Here's something you don't learn watching Greys. Apparently, when your body goes through extreme physical trauma, fluid moves toward the skin's surface as a protective mechanism, creating like a full-body swelling. I went to sleep looking like a svelte emrata, she wishes, and woke up a human pufferfish. This was confronting, not only because of the exceptional discomfort of skin stretched to capacity or my hands looking like someone blew up a pair of rubber gloves, but also because I was deeply ashamed of my body. Let's attempt to make some sense of this utter headfuckery, shall we? Firstly, I am but a girl raised in an image-focused world. Additionally, I had gone into surgery underweight due to the major food restrictions I'd been implementing. So when I woke up looking moon-faced and legitimately six months pregnant, it was an additional and unexpected shock. I used to think that overcoming something as supposedly life-altering as cancer guarantees a personal evolution. 
as it turns out, it's not always that simple. I was in a hospital with brilliant nurses who I was required to trust with everything from feeding me to wiping my butt. And I was worried that they thought I was fat. Even in my morphine-fueled paranoia, I could step outside myself and see how ridiculous that was. But fuck me, old habits die hard. Ugh, I annoy myself. I was so disappointed in myself for caring that my body had blown up, like Violet in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, instead of directing my energy into my healing. This anxiety was completely unnecessary and unhelpful, but not uncommon. I had seen it before in both Sam and Sue when they were sick. These incredibly brave, wonderful women who were dying furthered their own suffering by torturing themselves over the weight gained from certain medications. It hurt my heart to watch. Yet here I was, doing the same thing. My depression and crushing fear had evolved into a newfound fury. But ultimately, I was just at the other end of the spectrum. I was still ruled by emotions and deeply hurting. But this time I wore rage as armour. Still, somewhere locked deep in my solar plexus, impenetrable to change, was the me who carried scars from being bullied about my weight in the third grade. The me who excitedly absorbed thousands of images of airbrushed celebs every time a new issue of Girlfriend Mag hit my doorstep as a teenager. The me who now contends with Instagram influencers selling me flat tummy tea on a daily basis and desperately wants to try it even though it goes against everything I believe. All three of us, Sam, Sue, myself, were ashamed of the weight we gained while we were fighting for our lives. That's not an individual problem. That's a societal problem. And it's really fucking tragic. As I was lying in my hospital bed, stressing that I looked like a shiny, overgrown baby, my nurses were more concerned with how to turn, wash, and moisturize me. I had to be rotated and marinated like a pig on a spit a couple of times a day to avoid bed sores and encourage blood circulation. The problem with my spine being in two parts was that it was far too vulnerable to risk any twisting. It would take three or four nurses to turn me safely. There would be someone on each shoulder, at least one person on my legs and hips, and on a lucky day, I would even have someone manning my head and neck. This was all to roll me onto my side for a maximum of 20 seconds, because that's how long I could hold my breath, 
so they could scrub me, lather me up with moisturizer, and then quickly lie me back down. Look, I love attention more than Ariana loves a high pony, but I did not look forward to these turns. I couldn't breathe on my side, as the pressure of the bed against my fractured rib was too much for my lungs to expand against. I would have to take a deep breath right before they rolled me and hope I had enough air in my lungs to last the distance. Once I was left on my side for too long and started to splatter for air. I was just about to pass out when the team of nurses returned me to my back. Each time I had to give over another part of myself to be washed or wiped by a stranger, I would think, this is just a moment in time. You will be back. I gave myself permission to accept the process because the only other option was to ride it out in complete and utter humiliation. I couldn't change what was happening. I couldn't suddenly jump up and brush my own teeth or take a shower on my own. This was my life for now, and it royally sucked. But it wasn't forever. My nurses were wonderful. They were kind, gentle, and sensitive in delicate situations. The doctors, not so much. Extremely talented and proficient in their fields, they often lacked commensurate patience and compassion. I had a horrible experience in ICU when the nurses designated to my bedside could not access a vein to insert one of my cannulas. The nurses had tried numerous times in each of my elbows, and just as I overheard them talking about shoving it between my toes in an homage to Amy Winehouse, RIP. A doctor came over in a huff. We were clearly wasting his precious time. I was high as a fucking kite and only 24 hours out of surgery at that stage. But even I could tell this guy was being a jerk. He was acting as if it was my fault for not having plump, juicy veins while also implying the nurses were incompetent for not being able to access them. Angry at being called to perform such a menial task, he started stabbing at my wrist with a thick needle. I don't know how many times he tried before he decided this was getting cruel and went to get some numbing cream so he might continue the assault. I do know that a decade on, I still have five small scars on my left wrist from this incident. For comparison, I had dozens of cannulas in each elbow and wrist over the two weeks I was in the hospital and hundreds of blood tests taken from the same elbow over my two years of chemo. This was all done without a single scar in any other area than where this man butchered me. I couldn't cry or tell him to get fucked without worsening my own discomfort. But there was no preventing the silent tears that rolled down my cheeks. 
The nurses felt my pain and comforted me gently, but they had no power in this situation either. He probably thought I wouldn't remember how he treated me because of the state I was in. But this was one of the most traumatic parts of the whole procedure. I felt like an annoying, irrelevant pincushion. Sitting with immense discomfort and allowing things to happen has been both hideous and life-changing. It's as though... By sheer force of will, we as humans can still access a tiny corner of ourselves within a glimmer of stillness. It's not peace or calm, but it's quiet, and that's enough. Even when everything else inside you wants to scream, cry, and die, there is this part deep down like really fucking deep down sometimes, that just wants to survive. It must be the animal in us, an innate survival instinct. It took the greatest of pain and humiliation I have ever had to access my stillness, my spark, my will to live but I got there. I am not special by any means. I did not access this place out of strength, tenacity, or positivity, lol. Quite the opposite. I found it because I had no other option. Stillness found me. If I, the girl who was born existentially depressed, could find it, then there is no doubt in my mind that everyone else can too. After a week in hospital, and still in an extremely delicate condition, my primary surgeon came in to check on me and deliver some news. I had only relearned how to sit up two days earlier and wasn't yet walking or standing on my own. The doctor entered my room where mum was sitting by my bedside. He grinned at me nervously, which led me to press my personal morphine button repeatedly in preparation for the bad news. It's spread, I knew it, I'm done for. He told me the medical team had been analysing the section of my spine they had removed. I could tell he was dancing around something and wished he'd just spit it out. But I bit my tongue as he had recently saved my life. Okay, I prompted hesitantly. I wanted to sleep. The morphine was taking hold. He stood, wringing his hands with his back to the wall as far away from me as he could physically get in the tiny hospital room. He stammered anxiously over his next words. So, uh, you see, um, when we examined the, uh, the, the vertebra, <clears throat> we found, uh, it's funny, really, we found it no longer contained uh, the, um, well, the tumour we cut you open to retrieve. He grimaced as he raced through the final few words, forcing himself to say them. 
I felt mum stiffen next to me as she looked at me for a reaction. I did not agree that this was funny. I stared silently at the doctor, oscillating between blind rage and pure devastation. I was angry with my body for being so incapacitated, preventing me from shaking that awkward grimace right off his face. How? What? I fell deep down inside myself, mentally hiding in my corporeal safety blanket. Ah, shock, my old friend. You have returned. I could feel the throbbing of my heartbeat between my ears as my blood pressure rose, accompanied by a deep internal heat radiating from my core. My skin prickled. I stared unblinking for what felt like forever, but realistically, must have been a few seconds. When I finally blinked again, my eyelids scraped like sandpaper over my eyeballs. My vision was blurry from the high-dose opioids, but I was determined to focus on the man before me. This took concentration. Despite being a weak, immobile young woman, I must have worn my fury on my face because I'd never seen a fully grown, highly accomplished man so uncomfortable in my life. There I was, lying in front of him in agony so severe I slipped in and out of consciousness, and he was telling me it was avoidable? You will feel like you've been hit by a train. Those were his words of wisdom to prepare me for surgery. Not a bus. No. A train. He knew exactly what this would feel like. And yet... Why? As I stared him down, I imagined all the ways I could destroy him once I was able-bodied. Maybe I'll impale him with a spear. No, that's silly. Where would I even get a spear? An axe? Do I have the upper body strength for an axe? I can train. Ooh, train. I'll hit him with a train. This helped a little. Meanwhile, a nurse came in to check if I was still peeing blood, informed me that I was, and left again. I swallowed to lubricate my dry, sawdust throat and asked in feigned calm. So, why did you do the surgery? He chuckled nervously and replied, I thought you'd ask that. No shit. As he outlined what he suspected had happened, the throbbing between my ears proceeded to get louder and louder until it was like someone was thumping a bass drum inside my skull. Don't cry. Don't cry. Don't you dare fucking cry. The doctor hypothesized that the denosumab treatment had been so successful in converting my jelly-like tumor into bone 
that it had not only calcified the outer crust, but the entire tumour. He further clarified that had the tumour been somewhere less dangerous, such as a little toe, he would have considered postponing the surgery and taking me off the chemo to test whether or not the tumour would revert back to its previous consistency. However, due to the tumour's proximity to my spinal cord and the risk of paralysis, this was not a chance my medical team were willing to take. Despite my anger and confusion, I did understand their reasoning. But truth be told, I think I would have been happier never knowing, or at least waiting until after I had healed, so the team could face my full wrath. The timing was not ideal. After two weeks in the hospital, my surgeons and physiotherapists were convinced I would be okay to manage at home without them, and I was allowed to leave. I didn't feel ready. I could walk a few feet by myself, but still required full-time care from mum, who had taken time off work to look after me. Just to drive me home from the hospital, mum had to push the passenger's seat all the way back so I was as horizontal as possible, cover it in piles of blankets and supportive pillows, and make sure I timed my medication perfectly so that it was hitting my bloodstream as we were taking off. Even so, I was shaking and sweating with pain by the end of the 40-minute drive from the Epworth. Mum and Ben assisted me inside, guiding me to the lounge room. Dad had moved my bed there so I wouldn't be hidden away in my bedroom and I could get a good view of the lorikeets and rosellas outside. It helped to hear the hustle and bustle of life around me, despite being unable to join it. We quickly discovered that I would need assistance to sit up or get out of bed, so the mic stand, mocking me from the corner of the room, suddenly had a job to do again. I would roll carefully onto my left side, take hold of the mic stand in both hands and use my arm strength to lift me to a seated position rather than utilising my abdominal muscles. This saved me from a lot of pain. I would end up being almost completely bedbound for three months and severely incapacitated for six. It was tough. <laughs> Without distractions, all you do is sit in your pain, wallow in your loneliness, and hope that the next dose of OxyContin isn't too far away. I would end up being almost completely bedbound for three months and severely incapacitated for six. It was tough. Without distractions, all you do is sit in your pain, wallow in your loneliness, and hope that the next dose of OxyContin isn't too far away. Although the internet was well and truly established by this time, Netflix was not yet a thing. It's true. I was forced to watch 
Frida Ant TV. I know. Disgusting. I can still recite the TV guide from that period. The morning was filled with crappy shows where Karl Stefanovic would fail to make his chauvinism come across as charming. Midday saw Dr. Phil grace my screen, the clear highlight. Followed by Ready Steady Cook, back when George Calambara still had hair and lacked the kind of money that breeds greed. Finally, the Honourable Judge Judith Scheinlin would take us into the after-school program, at which stage Mum and I would settle in for a marathon of whatever reality show we were currently binging at the time. Laguna Beach, The Hills, The Real Housewives and Celebrity Rehab were big on our download list. This spawned my reality TV addiction, unrivaled by any of my peers. When you've watched nine hours straight of Heidi Montag transforming into a bot, Janice Dickinson's unmoving tits on Celebrity Rehab, or can remember Vicky Gunvalson's original face, and you still want more, you know you've entered the land of garbage humans. And if that's you, welcome. You are my beautiful garbage people. Between episodes, mum would help me shuffle to the toilet, try to get me to eat something, and take notes on which meds I had taken and which were still to come. She was my carer, and she was brilliant. Dad... Not so much. When I was in the hospital, he was great. He would come in and read to me from his stash of history books, his booming voice bouncing off the walls as I dipped in and out of sleep. But as soon as I was home, I saw him less and less. Mum was never more than a few metres away from my bedside at any given time. She often snuggled in next to me as we watched TV together. My clearest memory of Dad is him popping his head around door frames to ask how I am before continuing with his day. There had always been a massive disparity between Mum and Dad's attention around the home. But I guess I hadn't realised how much that translated into our relationships with them as well. Some days, he wouldn't so much as say hello. I'd hear him come home from work and start pottering around the kitchen as he waited for the kettle to boil. And I'd wait, hopeful that when he was done he would take 30 seconds to see how I was but as I heard his footsteps trail off into another room and the TV turn on, I would lie in bed, lifeless, heartbroken and invisible. As a small child, I never once felt forgotten or unloved when Dad would be interstate for months on end. This was different. This was a choice. When I was in hospital, being wheeled from ICU with a dozen wires, tubes and plugs coming out of my swollen, clammy body, a little boy whispered to his mother, Scary. 
The mum was horrified, but I actually found it pretty funny. The kid wasn't wrong. I looked like Frankenstein's monster. I believe my dad felt like that little boy, staring down at the barrel of mortality. And for him, it was too much to bear. I understood it, but that doesn't make it acceptable. Guess what? I was also scared. Mum was also scared. We all were. Fear doesn't mean you don't do something. Fear just shows you when you have to be brave. You don't turn away from someone who needs you, someone you love, just because it feels uncomfortable to look at them. That's not how love works. I didn't feel the anger and abandonment for me alone. I felt it for mum too. Why does the entire world need to rest on her shoulders? You're right there. Carry something. My dad was a kind but tortured soul. An overthinker in a way that made him brilliant beyond compare, but constantly heavy-hearted. His incredible mind took him to great places in his career. Sometimes, I think he would have loved to drift in blissful ignorance, just for a moment. We are similar in that way. Not in the intellectual capacity or illustrious career highlights, but in how we are both inescapably burdened. When it came to my illness, I suspect Dad was overwhelmed to the point of shutting down. He was an academic, a historian, a physicist, and an astronomer. He practiced maths for fun and was incomplete with at least two calculators on his person at any given time. I'm not saying he was a robot, but I was once awoken by his sleep talking to find him confidently reciting binary code. 01101000011010011110. He was a problem solver. Yet here I was, the ultimate problem. A problem whose answer was a big fat wait and see. We had to hope. And hope, by its very nature, lacks a solid answer. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, I appreciate you. I love you. You're the best. You can buy the book uh, by searching Gutter Glitter at Etsy. And you can also head to my website, kirstenmore.com.au. It's the first link on the page. Look, all of this, as you know, is in the show notes. Follow me on TikTok because, like I said, I... Nobody is watching my videos <laughs> and I'm working really hard to make them cool. At gutter glitter is their handle on TikTok. If you're listening on Spotify premium, you know, the song is about to play in your ears. The theme song once again is help. I'm alive by metric and I will see you next week.